0: You're listening to the Subclub podcast, a show dedicated to the best practices for building and growing subscription app businesses. We'll share insider secrets from the top subscription apps on the app stores. Let's get into the show. Welcome to the Subclub podcast. I'm your host David Bernard and with me as always, Jacob Biting. Glad to be here, David. <laughs> Good to talk to you, Jacob. Not that we see each other enough on Zoom all day. <laughs> Our guest today is Ryan Jones, longtime indie developer of Flighty and Weatherline. Before going full-time on his apps in 2019, Ryan spent time in operations at Apple and as entrepreneur-in-residence at Magara Jesse, a full-service product marketing agency. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah, really looking forward to chatting today. Um, so usually kick things off by asking people about their background and kind of what led them to their current role and all that stuff. But, um, in the context of this conversation and kind of your work history, I think what's especially interesting to discuss is how you made the, how, why, when you made the leap to being uh, fully in on your apps and, and leaving a, a, I mean, you, you and I've talked, we're friends in real life, like, uh, It was a pretty nice position there at at Magara jesse So uh, yeah, tell us about your kind of thoughts and decision-making process around uh, going full-time Indie.
1: Sure. I was at Magara jesse and, you know, part of even getting hired there, I was like, look, eventually I want to do my own thing. So that's why the Entrepreneur in Residence title helped. And kind of the way that I've found over the years that I think about products or ideas is I just haven't. Uh, notes app or, you know, I just in the notes app on my iPhone, I have a folder called ideas and I just write stuff in there constantly. And, you know, at any given time, there's probably like 40 or 50 things in there and probably 30 (laughs) of them are crap. And like most of them, you write them and then you wake up the next day and you look at it and you're like, that is horrible. I would never want to do that. But you kind of just write stuff down is what I do. And then I, I basically see what sticks over a long period of time. And I'm like, I still want to do that. Like I'm talking like months or years. And Basically with the flight tracking app, that was the one that pushed me to go full-time. And it was from, I was actually flying home on New Year's Day on 2018 and got stuck on a flight, got stuck in an airport waiting for a flight. And I was like, this is so stupid. If I would have just checked these six websites, I would have known that there's no possible way the flight would have gone off on time. But I was driving and like, I didn't check all these things. And I was just annoyed that like all the information's out there but I know these like five or six random websites you have to check and then you got to piece it all together and then I have to check them every five minutes. So it was that, it's a classic entrepreneur thing of like, as a problem I thought about forever, wanted to do it for years and years. And then finally there was a moment where I was like, screw this, I'll do it. Um, So came back from New Year's Eve trip in 2018 and told my bosses I want to do it full time. But the, I guess the shorter answer to your question is, I keep ideas around, and then eventually I'm like, "All right, I have to do this and go for it."
2: I, I remember, I remember when the uh, the flighty thread kicked off, and you kind of built it in public a little bit. You kind of talked about it as you went, and, like the frustrations. And I remember you have to remind me. There was another app early in the app store days that did it pretty well. What was it called? Flight Track. Flight Track. Yes. And there was a pro. There were two, there were two versions, right? Yeah. 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 It got bought by Tripit. Yeah. Yeah. Expedia. And I remember, I was so excited when I saw you were going to jump on it because, yeah, it made total sense to me. It was like, uh, this is definitely a hole in the market. Like, there was a great app, and then it kind of just, like, died off over time. So, it was, like, super exciting to see somebody, like, jumping on it uh, again. I want to ask, like, so you know, what, what is your, do you, what is your classical training? Like, you know, I was an engineer, like, so, 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 you know, I do this, David's a recording artist or sorry, a recording engineer. (laughs) Like, (laughs) like, what is your, what is your provenance? Technically
1: I'm a mechanical engineer and I got a, like a half MBA, um, where I did like, I went to school for an engineering management program and then like Two weeks into it, I was like, this is not what I thought. And I went to the director and I was like, I'm out of here. He's like, well, we've had students do this in the past. What if we just let you take all the MBA classes? i like, oh, that's interesting. So I took all the MBA classes, but the compromise was they wouldn't give me an actual MBA. MBA. And I was like, I don't care. I'll just take all the classes. So engineering. <laughs> and then the other thing that is really weird is I worked in the oil industry for four years. So I was literally, you know... Frack jobs, I'm sure you've heard about them in the news. I was running frack jobs for a year. I did that. <laughs> um, I have a pretty engineering in terms of like physical engineering background. And then in the digital space, basically everything except for engineering.
2: Yeah. So so did you have like, always have like an affinity for software as an enthusiast? Or like, how did you get into not just liking apps, but actually making them yourself?
1: Yeah, I have a boring answer. It's like everybody else. The, <laughs> I, the iPhone changed changed my sure. world on that. Um, What happened was I would find myself out in the middle of nowhere running frack jobs for oil companies and just reading Twitter and, like, looking at apps constantly. Tweety was a big, like, holy crap moment for me. Like, look what software can be. I just never experienced that level of design in terms of the whole iOS ecosystem. And it never... You know, growing up in Houston, it was like, oil is what you do. It never really registered that, like, there's people out there that make the software. It just kind of, like, appeared for me. (laughs) And I was like, wait, people actually do this, and you can make money doing it. So I had one of those moments of, like, I'm in the oil field doing oil stuff, waking up every day and reading about design and apps and businesses and Apple. And the thing that kind of clicked for me was, you know, oils is... Uh, kind of famous for being really lucrative, like was making a ton of money and we worked four days a week and my housing was paid for and all these contractors paid for all my meals and it was just crazy. And I had this moment of like, this is so good and so like easy that if I don't get out now, I'm going to look up in 40 years from now and be like, I should have at least tried. So it kind of forced me to give it a shot.
2: Interesting. And before... I mean, I want to back up because Flighty was not your first foray, right? Right. Yeah. So, actually, good segue that first thing I did when I
1: left the oil company was I was like, okay, I want to prove to myself that I can do this, that it's not crazy. So, I was like, all right, I have, I'm going to give myself six months to launch an app and get it in the top 100 in the app store. And if I can do that, then that proves that I actually know something about products and I can make apps. You know, it's, kind of pulled out of thin air, but it was nice to have something. Um So Weatherline was something that I'd thought about for like literally the second since the iPhone launched. I didn't understand. I saw the stocks app and like the graphs in it and I saw the weather app and the weather in it. And I was like, why isn't people, why aren't people understanding that on this new digital like media or on this new like pocket medium that you can't just have a list of weather, like show it to me. So I kind of had always had sketches for it and so that was the thing I tackled after leaving the oil industry.
2: I had to assume that that was like your full-time gig. I didn't realize that you were working on that as like a side thing before, before, before you launched Flighty. So that's, that's super interesting um, because it, it was, did pretty well. I feel like Flighty or uh, what, sorry, Weatherline was pretty well reviewed. I remember Gruber tweeting about it very yeah. early on, correct? Uh, which is a nice boost, right? <laughs> yeah. I never, I did not uh, expect the reception that it got. Like Gruber, I
1: had a ton of cool people on the beta and I just thought they were like being friendly and like being on the beta and being nice. Um, and my like online persona at the time was all Apple. Like I was just talking about iPhone stuff and um, sales and like what the next one was going to be and like pred- predicting what the next iPhone would have and stuff like that. So Gruber and Marco and MG Siegler and Chris Dixon, all kinds of crazy cool people were on the beta. And when it launched, they were all like, this thing's amazing. I've been using it and it's awesome. And I didn't expect that. Like, I didn't have that feedback from them. And so, yeah, them getting behind it was huge. It, I think it hit number 12 or number 13 in the app store. And it was just like, I just remember sitting at my computer and being like, what? Wow. Like, I don't understand how that happened. Um, it's not
2: really a, um, a typical experience for somebody's first app. <laughs> so, <laughs> not bad. Yeah. That was 2012,
0: 2013? Correct.
1: 2013. Yeah. I guess the typical experience it was, Hey, this is a paid upfront app. And then realizing a month or two later, like,
0: oops, there's no more money coming in. (laughs) So, um, after that, you, you actually spent some time at Apple in operations and then ended up at Magara Jesse. I did want to kind of circle back to the, to kind of your indie founding story. I didn't, I didn't put this in the, in the notes for the, the podcast, but I'll put you on the spot. Um, so as entrepreneur in residence, did uh, McGarrie Jesse end up uh, funding or did you take any funding when you jumped to, I, I don't think I've ever asked you this personally, we've never talked about it. So totally just put you on the spot. And uh, did you take any funding or did you just jump right into it, having some income already coming in? No funding. So both companies are bootstrapped. What I did
1: was, you know, as entrepreneur in residence, kind of what the paper said, technically, and like our agreement, it's a very, McGarrie Jesse is a super like, straightforward, honest, just good, good guys. Um and I went to them and I was like, here's the idea. I would love to work with you guys. Um here's what I think it can be. And we just had an honest discussion with the founders of that company saying, do we think it's a fit for you? And ultimately with you know some of the top people at that company, they decided it wasn't really a fit for them. Um, It had been our intention to come up with something that worked for both of us and for me to kind of split out and either have a sister company, or you know, at least have them do like the product marketing side of it. They're exceptional at that, and I wanted to leverage that, but it just didn't fit at the moment. So they were like, "Okay, go do your thing," um, and I jumped, did it full time and fully bootstrapped, and like just from that Twitter thread, started working with five people, and took forever to build it. But uh, two years later, basically, we launched it.
0: That's awesome. I do want to like start diving into some um, more specifics around stuff you've been working on in, in thinking about some of the moves you've made. I mean, Flight is a brilliant app. I love it. I've been gushed about it online, uh, on Twitter and stuff, and I absolutely love the app and, and love the like your product thinking and everything. One of the more impressive things I think you've done, and I'm so jealous as a competitor um, in the weather app space, <laughs> is... That you took something that that many of us in the weather space were already doing, like in my app, um, WeatherUp. I have different data sources. I combine those data sources in the app. You did a and Kurt, Kurt does similar. You can set different uh, data sources and, and everything. So you you took something that was sort of already being done, um, which is taking multiple data sources, and you you, you branded it Super Forecast and like. When that launched and you told me about it, I was like, damn it, he's so, damn it. <laughs> like, I should have done that. Um, but tell me about like the, the thinking behind that because I mean, this is just something I think app makers aren't always very good at is like there's kind of a job to be done for a weather app and Super Forecast is like this kind of branding around a really smart way to tackle the job to be done and kind of explaining to users that kind of, that, that benefit, that value. So, I mean, I'm, I guess I'm kind of already jumping on your answer a little bit, but yeah, tell me about how that came to be and, and how you think about that as kind of a marketing uh, tactic.
1: Yeah, sure. So, you know, Carrot is kind of the main competitor in that space, along with Apple's built-in app. And Carrot takes the, like, you can customize every single thing direction. Um, and it's not that, like, the, what flight, or sorry, what Weatherline is as opposed to that, but Weatherline is more of, like, we'll make the decisions for you and like give you like, we'll be the weather experts and like give you what you need to see kind of thing. And honestly, you kind of alluded to it in your question, but the way that I figured out that angle, this super forecast angle was just explaining to people over and over what we were trying to do. So I guess we didn't, we haven't said it explicitly, but like in a lot of competitor weather apps, they give you a choice between like four to eight weather sources and it's up to the user to pick the one that they want. And most users, well, some users know, like, oh, in my area, the weather channel is more accurate, and in Australia, BOM is more accurate, and in Europe, we have uh, whatever it is. So there's all kinds of different regional um, weather providers that are certain better for certain areas. And kind of my, I kept explaining to people over and over that we're beta testing the app because they would. Actually, if I pause for a second, I always find it super helpful when I talk to people about apps because the first thing that they say is, what makes it different? Hmm. And I have to answer that question. And in my head, I know all the tiny little things that add up to make it different. But it really does cut through what users are trying to figure out, like when they look at your screenshots or when someone else asks them about the app or like what it is. It's like, just tell me what makes it different. And, you know, with the weather line, it had always been the line graphic. And what I was, I wasn't calling the super forecast thing, super forecast from the beginning. I was just saying like, we're going to pick the best of each forecast type and put it together for you. And I kept explaining it to people over and over. And then I, you know, if you explained it and you're like, okay, AccuWeather is actually the best for forecasting. So we're going to use that. And dark sky is actually the best for rain. So we're going to use that. And WDT is actually better for radar and we're going to use that. And it's like, they're they're already tuned out. Like, that's ridiculous. (laughs) So I learned over talking to people over and over to say, we pick the best weather provider for each type and put it together for you so you don't have to use five apps or whatever it was. Um, And just talking it out over and over made me figure out the angle that it could be something. And Super Forecast, I hate the name (laughs) because it's kind of (laughs) generic. But if, if other people like it, that's what matters.
2: I mean, that is what I people always say that about the name revenue cat. Okay, everybody asks me, like, does it have some deep significant meaning to me? And I'm like, no, not really. I just knew it was memorable and like
0: fit the brand <laughs> enough. Like, that's 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 what's important. Well, and that and that that's maybe another good point, though, is that being clear and clearly communicating that value prop is more important than it being clever or this like amazing brand. It's just so clear. Like you open the app. And what you're pitching is upgrade to get the super forecast. And so, yeah, it's not like the most clever, perfect branding. You don't need to copyright that or whatever, I don't know. but it's I, just
2: like, I didn't know there was a smart. super forecast. And now I'm, I'm, I've never been a weather app person. And now I'm kind of like, hmm, that sounds kind of interesting. <laughs> like maybe I need <laughs> a forecast. I mean, I was going to, I was going to ask this, Ryan, like, you know, you, you kind of casually mentioned like, Oh, weatherline, I got all these, like I had an online persona and all these like famous, like app people, like got to use my beta. I like, don't know if you recognize like how much of a kind of a growth hack that is. Like, did you, was that your yeah. intention? Was that just like you fell into that? Cause I mean, that's, that is one model. Like yep. some ways getting that very early tr- growth traction is the hardest. So did you do that intentionally? Or was that just like, how can I bootstrap and grow this? Or like, what was your thought process? Uh, it was
1: totally not intentional, but looking back, it was exactly what you're supposed to do. If you're being intentional <laughs> about it. So. <laughs> Like, I under, I was just a random person engaging with these kind of, like, more famous online personas. And we were all, at the moment, at the time, remember, everyone was talking about the iPhone. It was like, oh, my God, the iPhone 5 is going to be, the screen's going to be a little bit bigger. That's crazy. As I say, we were just
2: getting, like, multitasking, right? The like The screen's going to really. be too big. Can you believe <laughs> the screen's going to be this big? It's going to be insane.
1: And, um, you know, I was just paying attention to those rumors and talking to those people about it. And I'm really, like... At the core, I'm like a product and a strategy. That's like what I like to talk about and think about. So I was just talking about Apple products and strategy to these kind of people that had blogs and podcasts about it. And I knew that they were talk, they were getting a ton of bullshit in the replies and tons of great people talking about stuff. So I would always make my replies like really short and like what I honestly thought, or like take the time to make a graph, or like include a link, or like just giving thoughtful replies. Um, and then eventually those people just started following me. And then I guess eventually we start DMing.
2: Before reply guy became like a dirty word, right? You were like the <laughs> <Yeah>. original. <laughs>
1: yeah. Sorry, that, I mean, I back then it was like the small community where it's like yeah. everybody. <laughs> it was before the bad people got on Twitter. <laughs> but,
0: but we talked about this in the episode before with uh, uh, Ed Zitron. It should, it's probably going to be released right before this episode is that if you're helpful, people pay attention. Like, if you're not mm-hmm. just that reply guy, like, asking for stuff, saying stupid stuff, if you talk to press, if you talk to influential people, if you're, like, actually helpful and, like, give insightful. helpful responses and insightful and, like, blog about things and talk about things, like, that's how you, like, get people's attention. And 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 then, I mean, that's exactly what how I built up. You know, I blogged and Gruber linked to it because it was interesting and both
2: like. both of both of you guys, I think my first experiences with you was via your like internet persona. Like Ryan, before you did flight, like I just remember seeing your seeing your 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 avatar like every like retweeted and liked and all this stuff. I was like, who is this guy talking about Apple stuff all the time? Right. <laughs> uh, yep. yeah. So but but yeah, I mean it does work. I mean, I'm sure the landscape is massively different now than it was seven years ago or eight years ago. Um, but I do think it's interesting that, yeah, you look back at it in retrospect and it was a, like, it's a good way to bootstrap a following, right. Um, it's just to have something interesting to say. I mean, it goes back into, we talk about content a lot on this show, but I, I think that's, you know, a type of that content, right. You're just slightly different channel.
1: Yeah. One of the things that I did, um, that I guess it fits what you're saying. I was just trying to be like helpful and really short and sweet and to the point and, What I did was I once I had kind of the beta working and I was three or four minutes into it, I kind of had the pitch really tight and short. So it was like making a weather app that's designed by Pacific Helm, who, which, you know, was like famous guys at the time and uses dark sky, which is the best data source. And we have this really unique angle where you can see your weather instead of reading your weather. And what I would do is I had that little like blurb. Like kind of always on my clipboard, basically. And when I noticed that someone who I really respected and wanted to get on the beta, and I again, like David said, I wasn't wanting them to get on the beta to like later broadcast about it. I just really respected them and wanted their thoughts on the product. I would wait until they were like actively tweeting, and then I would take a screenshot in the app of the city that they're in, because you know their cities in their bio, and then DM it to them or send it to them. So it's like right when they look at it's their actual current weather right Would now you wait for them it, to
2: make a comment about weather or something or was it just like nah. just waiting for the right time yeah just like you know you can tell when people are
1: active on twitter like okay yeah. he's sitting down on the couch and he's actually typing right now um so i'll just send this thing that was like two sentences a screenshot and a link to the test flight and it worked really well
2: yeah that's i mean i awesome. think that's that's it's not too dissimilar from how they kind of in in yc world when they teach you kind of how to to pitch yeah. or sell right it's like you do kind of have to be annoying right? you get to like kind of walk this line like there's a line it's in sales too and it's honestly in hiring it happens i see this repeated pattern and like a lot of you know economic activity is like just finding the right way to get what you're doing in front of people who could find it valuable right and there's ways to do that that are annoying uh but you know if you're you know if you're if you apply product thinking to it which you are right you're thinking about what the experience is like for that user you know, you can do it in a way that's not necessarily annoying—not reply guy territory.
0: <laughs> yeah, speaking of marketing, one thing I did want to bring up is um, is privacy as marketing. So, you know, I've talked about this a little bit over the years, and uh, Flighty famously, although maybe you haven't talked about it as quite as much in public, but um, you've kind of built the whole company around being very careful with user data. Um, so now with Apple kind of putting those privacy notifications front and center with app tracking, transparency being a big deal, obviously both of your apps don't sell user data. They don't track people. They don't do these things. What are your thoughts on, on using that as, as marketing and how have you used that as marketing? So the
1: back, the, I have to give a little context here is that David always is trying to pitch me on the fact that this is a thing. Like when we're when we're texting, <laughs> when we're texting, he's like, "Dude, like, what if I like weather up? I could make it like super privacy focused. Like, we could be the privacy weather app." And I'm like, "Ah, uh, okay." So like, I, I don't think it's as big of a deal as data but does.
0: I brought it up because you because you've done it though. Like you actually
1: did it. I haven't done it yet. I think it's a I think it's a thing that's a nice to have. I don't really think of it like a huge marketing feature like you do. And I could be wrong. Like I mean, we all saw like what signal and telegram are going nuts right now. And I saw a chart yesterday that duck, duck go like yeah. all of a sudden is the number one search engine in the U.S. like these things happen all of a sudden. And I, I don't really have the greatest history ever of being the first one to like see it's coming. I tend to think of it as honestly, it's kind of boring. It's like, if I were using these apps, here's what I would <laughs> want to do. And
0: right.
1: especially with the flight stuff, like whether it's a little like what data are you really giving them? Like here's, cities i'm interested in right although i guess it, if you're creepy and you sell background tracking data there's a lot there um we can talk about that forever but <laughs> with flight stuff people are really more sensitive it's like you know where people are going um it's, it's, it feels more personal um and then it's a higher priced product it's kind of targeted more towards like adults kind of i guess as, well, i mean you know, also
2: just like people who fly already yeah. puts you in the top five percent right of uh, uh, yeah, frequently, high income, right? yeah
1: yeah and it's a lot of people who use flighty are either in sales or executives so mm. we just see constantly like vp ceo svp all that kind of stuff and those people you know are really intense about their privacy especially when they're doing like salesy dealsy type stuff like you know yeah. you don't want to know that xyz is meeting with xyz so it's worked to our advantage. It's also just the products that I want to build.
0: So, you, so you built it from the ground up, just as a product thing. You just built it as like this is what I, I know I care about, and users are going to care about. So, you, so how do you present that in the app? I mean, you just kind of say we don't track, but you, it's not you don't use it as a big marketing thing.
1: Right? Yeah, I would. I don't think it's in our screenshots. I think it's in the description, kind of like towards the bottom of the app store description, which is, you know. I, you think it's more important. I think it's less important. I just put it in there, and it's like, we don't have any of these things. Like, we don't do X, Y, Z, all the stuff that everybody hates.
0: That's interesting. And, I mean, I, I, I've I've gone back and forth on whether or not I think people care. I mean, like, you know, I talked to my wife, and she's like, oh, yeah, Facebook's super creepy. But I like Facebook, so whatever. And so, yeah. I mean, I do think to a certain extent, you know, I mean, Apple's pushing privacy really hard Things like you know the whatsapp uh, permission changes, you know bring it to the forefront, and you see these waves and stuff I don't know that it is going to be this massive marketing thing moving forward, but I just find it really interesting and, um, and one of the things I was actually curious about related to this to bring revenue cat into the conversation, oh, ring no. the bell, make a donation or something but um the, so part of the reason I know all of this is that about how, how you've been doing your privacy in Flighty is that you built um, your own subscription infrastructure from the ground up for Flighty because you didn't even want to have it, some combination of either the third-party code and/or privacy. Also. <clears throat>
2: Jacob critically failed at making the sale in
0: 2018. <laughs> <laughs> but so I was curious because a, a lot of our, a, a lot of the people listening to this, you know, either don't use revenue cat, uh, won't use revenue cat for various reasons or whatever. So, uh, but then you do use revenue cat and weatherline. And so, you know, not looking for a, a sales pitch or anything, but I'm just curious kind of like how things have gone for flighty, running your own infrastructure. And then like kind of the, the, where you see the contrast with Weatherline and using Revenue Cat.
1: Let me pause that for two seconds because the previous, I want to come back to it though, but the previous conversation about the privacy stuff, you know, something that nobody's talking about online and I feel like is kind of important is these privacy nutrition label things came out from Apple and mm-hmm. I didn't think people would care about it beforehand. And it appears that pretty much people don't care. Like I know that WhatsApp blows up and, but that'll be gone in like a week or two. Yeah. I uh, mean, I was curious y'all's read on it, to be honest, but like we filled out ours. Not a single person has ever said anything about it. Maybe that's because we don't track anything, but I haven't heard of anyone not downloading an app or like, oh my God, normal people are looking at these nutrition labels. It just is
2: a non-thing, right? It's more text. I feel like it's like a EULA or a Terms yes. of Service, right? Yes. It's just going to be something that people filter out. If you look at, I mean, actually, um, it's not privacy collection related, but on, on Android, Uh, at least like API disclosures are all up front. So like if Mm. you're using maps or location or whatever, that's at the like install stage instead of like the, like many different opt-ins that iOS has that are, it's a terrible experience. Yeah. And yeah, I just skip it. Right. It's just like too much information. Right. I don't know. I haven't seen it. You can't say it's a bad thing, but there is just like an amount of only so much bandwidth that a consumer has for, for taking this stuff in. And I think, I think it's also, you know, to David's anecdote about your wife, like there's, there's, there's just like sort of an unaware, I think if you sat somebody down and explained to them, like Ryan, you, you alluded to like data collection as an industry, like, I don't think people even know that's a thing. Like you will download, there are many apps out there, apps that Apple promotes that you download and they're a, a significant amount of their revenue comes from literally just tracking everywhere you are and selling it to data collection firms who then repackage it and resell it for things like targeting and things like, um, even even weird stuff like analytics and just knowing like, yeah, all kinds. Of, it's basically your location data as a product and it's supposed to be anonymized and whatever, but you know what? Nobody's really watching. Like, it's not no. like there's a chain of custody. It's just not hyper-regulated, right? These are just like CSVs that companies are trading back and forth. I mean, that's part of why, I guess like the EU knows and that's why GDPR is like a thing or whatever. Um, but I just don't think the awareness is at a consumer level. And I'm not sure that, I'm not entirely sure that, because like, all right, you add it, you add this label to your app. So it's like, I collect this. And I guess for this purpose, like, who's actually going to read that, internalize what that, means, and make a decision? I don't know. I, I, I don't think, I think it should be there. Right. But, but yeah. is it going to change consumer
0: behavior? I don't know. My thought is that it it is a niche and that, but it's a niche that's growing. So if you if you think about apps like DuckDuckGo and and them as a service, it's like they exist in part because they don't track, like they are objectively worse than Google, but they're good. So why do you use them? You use them because you don't want Google to have your data. So, you know, however many millions of people are using DuckDuckGo versus Google, it's like there's a there is a niche market for privacy-centric digital products and that niche will probably grow but as a percentage of the entire market it probably is still like single digit percentage um and maybe it's going to grow to small double digit percentage but yeah i don't think I, I, and maybe it grows slowly but but i doubt you know we're going to see like half the market is reading those things and like Picking apps based on privacy labels and stuff like that, and that doesn't mean you shouldn't do the right thing and not sell user data. You know, And I mean, you and I are are, are there with our apps and and believe in that. And Revenue Cat's very careful about the data we collect uh, by default. I mean, I was
2: I was going to mention that, like you kind of mm-hmm. in your initial question, Dave, like we're not privacy purist about it, right? Like you add revenue cat to your app. That's data you're sharing. We're we're a third party, right? And that's something you need to communicate to your users. And I guess like that's kind of a, an angle to ask you Ryan about it is like having one app, you know, when you're thinking about flighty and what you want to do, like, what are the limitations? Like, you know, using us for, for receipt tracking might be one of them, right? But are there, are there certain things that you're, you're hindered by as an, as an app developer that the privacy focus really like tied your hands? Just to close out the
1: privacy thing, my, I guess my hope with it is that the nutrition labels that they've started are kind of like a first pass at it. You know, they have like th- three different sections about data linked to you, not linked to you, blah, blah, blah. And then like underneath, it's just way too much granular stuff. But to kind of share my final thoughts on that, I just pray that they'll kind of like, we got to get it down to like five check marks or something. Like, <laughs> so like my mom can look at it and be like, this one only has three yeah. checks and not five checks and I'm out. Anyway.
2: Right. It could just be like, we look at your data, we give it to other people, we yeah. sell it, right? It can right. be that three levels. Uh, I Something. Yeah, I agree. Something. So, and then, the,
1: okay, so the revenue cat thing, and this is going to sound like a sales pitch, so.
2: <laughs> no, crap. Like, I think you're, I'll, I'll share that Ryan's one of our, our harshest critics as a user. <laughs> 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 and and and, it, and it, I only mention it because it's some of the best criticism because it's often right. And so. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah, so, so I'll give you the good
1: and the bad. So, Yes. For Weatherline, we used Revenue RevenueCat. Part of the decision there was we were going from a free product, or sorry, from a paid up front mm. to subscription. And that transition from, I have users and I need to look at all their receipts so that I know how much to charge them and what to show them is difficult. Way more difficult than standing something up from the ground up saying, we're brand new and we're going to start with subscriptions, which is the position Flighty was in. And the thing that, honestly, the reason we I tried to get our guys at Flighty to use RevenueCat and Frances, our back end engineer, is just like, he's like, I can do it. And he's an absolute beast. And so I was like, okay, go ahead. Honestly, like if we didn't have, I still tried to convince them to do it. I was like, we can outsource this. It's a great thing. And then you guys have all the integrations with Amplitude and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, we use it in Weatherline. It's awesome. But honestly, it's just because we have an incredible backend engineer on Flighty. Um, and then... I guess the other thing is, this is going to sound like I'm really doing a sales pitch for you guys, but there's not a whole lot of things I consider to be like, yep, you should use it. But you, you've you reached the point, good for you, congratulations, honestly, you've reached That's, the point where it's like when people so are glad. standing up. I'm
2: finally, I'm finally validated.
1: <laughs> when finally. people are standing up their apps and like, should I use this? I'm like, yes, 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 thousand percent. <laughs>
2: Well, I, I mean, I, I was getting, you kind of mentioned you mentioned amplitude in there. It's like you know something mm-hmm. that we integrate with, but it's, it's just like an important tool from product analytics perspective. But I imagine on Flighty, you're not using that if if you're very like privacy focused. So, is is that is that? Well, I don't want to blow you up. It's no, like, we do use amplitude on Flighty, but it's all oh, turned yeah. off. Like so, like okay. we don't we turned off the thing where you get IP and we don't tie.
1: So we don't have user I accounts. Think. So I'm not in amplitude. I don't look up Jacobs anything. You're just a 64 Brr. digit <laughs> token. I don't know who anyone is. It's just so it is truly, as they say, aggregated and anonymous. Like there's not even there's no way to connect anything.
2: We've got it. I we got don't it. share
1: it out with ad networks or whatever. So it's all
2: Going back to not to not to, to you know circle around the same question sure. or go down the rabbit hole, but that is another point of like how fine the line is about what mm-hmm. is like zero tracking versus anonymous tracking, and like the meaning yep. of that is way beyond what the the median consumer really has the context for. But this is it's just really interesting because these tools are helpful, right? Like when you're building a product, amplitude is just so helpful, or something like that. It tells you like how the users are using your app, where they're going, where are they getting stuck and these are questions that are especially on a consumer product where you have thousands of users it's just really really useful to see that see that data you know in in aggregate
1: yeah i was a pretty big naysayer before i had more experience you know i was like you don't really need that like just listen to your users talk to them in customer support and twitter and get customer feedback and do user studies like yeah you really need to see that Ninety percent of my people are doing this one thing. Yeah. It's like that. You can't really get a replacement for action. So I'm with you. You just have to do it respectfully.
0: Well, following following that thread, I feel like we've we've danced around a lot of topics um, already, and we're pretty deep into the podcast. But you said early on that you especially enjoy talking about product and strategy, and we have not talked that much about product and strategy. <laughs> so um, you know, one of the things that that um, we kind of kicked around before. The podcast to talk about is uh, feature planning announcement and just like how you think about product generally. And so, yeah, I'd love to hear kind of like how, how you have staged things and thought about that that feature development and then how you leverage that into marketing, which I, I think is kind of what you were getting at there.
1: Yeah, this is a hard one. And it's I feel like I'm in that like what's the startup curve where it's like a big S I'm in the, I'm in the bottom of the second <laughs> trough, like, trough of sorrow. Like, yeah. I, I thought it. I really got this. And as I learn more, I'm like, Oh geez, I have no idea. what's going. <laughs> so uh, it's a constant learning thing for me. And it's, it's, you know, for the last year, it's what I've been reading and uh, researching a ton is like, how do smart product people prioritize this stuff, which is so hard to balance what my current users want versus what my new users want versus monetization versus Versus strategic direction, right? Like where do you want to,
2: where do you want to take the product? Right. Uh, That's a
1: big idea with. And with, so with flighty, I mean, we haven't talked about it much, but you know, we launched in October, 2019. So we had five months of Mm. the old world. And then all of a sudden, nobody's flying again. So it's like, okay, well, that's a small thing that I should probably add into my product roadmap. It's not <laughs> like you just keep going on the roadmap as if nothing ever happened, right? Right. So it's, you just have to make all these constant, um, like really small decisions uh, and just uh, constantly be readjusting it. But
0: And so with Flighty specifically, how, how did you adjust the product to the pandemic? And like, what was your thought process behind that?
1: Yeah, it's funny to look back on now. So, you know, February and March we were doing the same thing everybody else was doing of like, I don't have any idea how long this is going to last. And kind of as a leader, my kind of thing that I was putting out to the team at that time was let's not overreact. We're not going to change the entire roadmap because this thing, maybe this is three or four months long and I don't want to get three or four months into this and have worked on a COVID specific feature and then it's gone. Right. And that seems ridiculous to say now, but in March and April, nobody had any idea. Right. (laughs) Right. So then as we got deeper into it, maybe like August, September, it it was like, okay, this is gonna legit be here. And the way people travel is changing, right? So what happened essentially was my core user of a person who flies constantly, sometimes for business, but pretty much is flying once a week or once every other week, like those people just don't exist anymore. There's still people flying, but it's just not that person. So literally our core user just vaporized off of earth like they just don't exist anymore we, we really try not to keep a backlog we kind of i kind of have like a base camp mentality on that like as soon as you start keeping a backlog it's just a place where a bunch of stuff goes into a list to die and you move it around and like oh wait this one's now like number seven it's, not it's number our like pressure. it's our
2: pressure valve right you're just
1: like, yeah hey, it just makes it, you feel it somewhere yeah you, you, you go look at it and move stuff around and nothing actually happens so we Don't do that. We kind of, there's always like five or six features that are we're kind of thinking about. Um, and that just you know, COVID just readjusted the ones we we're thinking about, so we had to start thinking more about people that use the app not on a yearly basis. So we've kind of launched the concept of you get your first flight for free, and then after that, you can decide if you want to pay. Versus previously, it was you get a one week or two week trial, mm. so it, you can see how that fits a lot better, you know, you download the app whenever you want, and then you don't have to start a trial. You just, whenever you take your first flight, you get the pro features for free. Um, And we're going to continue to evolve that. It's been a, you know, as COVID has happened and continued to happen, basically, (laughs) other plans have been changing. But, um, you know, we focused on stuff that we just readjusted the roadmap, like what's, what's stuff that is relevant to this now, and we didn't do any crazy overreactions. Like we didn't, you know, we thought about, okay, uh, if someone is healthy or not, it's going to be a massive thing or whether or not they can fly. Should we launch like a health passport thing? And we mm-hmm. decided it would be an overreaction. There's companies that are doing just that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we really thought through all of those, like, is this a company changing moment? Um, and what what we ultimately decided is our long-term roadmap of like, let's start with the core users that fly constantly and then like slowly bring it down to everyone. It just kind of, accelerated to slowly bringing it down to everyone. So it just needs to be more accessible to people who are flying on an irregular
0: schedule. Do you use any kind of like a product prioritization matrix or like, how do you think through some of these product decisions? Like, you know, looking at kind of user feedback and user stories versus, and, and, and yeah, building what people ask versus like building what you want to build versus building like what's going to monetize, like, Do you have any kind of, is it kind of a gut thing? Or do you have any kind of prioritization matrix?
1: Man, this is, (laughs) I feel like I've tried every system. I've tried ice and I've tried rice. I've tried all these crazy, (laughs) like use all these things. And it ends up being the same as backlog where it's like, okay, now we have a spreadsheet with a bunch of values in it that tell me what we should build that have 20 things in it and I don't look at it. Then then I go off and think and like go on a walk or talk to users or talk to other people in the company and we decide what we're going to build. Yeah. The only thing that's kind of stuck with me lately is I basically have a poster board on my wall that has risk and reward along one and then effort along the other and I just stick post-it notes on it. And it helps me recenter because I'll be thinking like, "Oh, oh man, it would be so cool if we could well, I don't know how to do this without giving away our roadmap. Uh, it'd be so cool if we could make our make our where's my plane feature a little bit better, right? And then I look at that board and it's like, that's not even close to the best place that customers would want us to be spending our time right now. And you kind of forget until I look back at that and you can see these post-it notes that are way up in the top right corner of here's the stuff we should be working on.
0: So that's the way I'm doing it at the moment. It's, it's stuck way longer than anything else. That's really cool. I like that. That is a product prioritization matrix, and I love that you you're going to You know what's fun cool post- about it
1: too is I have a I have a huge black fat marker, and when we do one, it's so nice to just take the fat marker and put a big check <laughs> on it.
0: And you look up at
1: your grid, and you're like, "Yeah, we did three that are in the top right quadrant."
2: <laughs> That's great. I mean, and you, you know, you're you're a relatively small team still. Like, I think mm-hmm. that we, some of these methodologies are are built for like when you have product man multiple product managers, and like you have. Decision makers and like trying to like scale your process out. I think like we're still at a stage where we're just now starting to like wade into not just everything in Jacob's head and maybe like a like a, a post it note like somewhere. <laughs> um, and 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 like we're twenty people, so like I I think it's like you do what makes sense for you, what makes sense for your goals as well. And, and you know, I, you know, I asked you earlier I was, like, what do you want to like? How, you know, what do you think about it? I think it's important for makers to make sure that your product is for the customers and it's for them. But it there's a lot of it that needs to be for you too. Like you're you're the the artist here, I guess, and you and your team. And so so building, you know, the reason that you have this in the first place is because you had some unique insight, right? You had some idea of what to build. It's like there's the there's the faster horses quip for for Ford or whatever. But I think there is like something there to be a little bit, a little bit of, you know, I'll tell you what you want, right? (laughs) Like I will, I will decide what, yeah, just a little bit, a little bit, you need to talk to users. That's like for sure. But there there needs to be a little bit of opinion in my, I don't know, this is like this one man's opinion on how to build a (laughs) product, but I do think it's important. Otherwise your product just become, you know, you just become a a backlog. You like turn a backlog into a product, which is a, a terrible way to make stuff.
0: Yeah. So speaking of talking to users, like how do you think about customer support, user feedback and things like that? Like how do you integrate that customer feedback into your app and how do you handle customer support?
1: There's kind of two things that I continually come back to, um, user studies, which, you know, we don't in our little community, we don't talk about them on Twitter, like nearly enough. Um, like I'll take certain, I'll just take a day, like maybe once a quarter and just, line up like 16 users and just watch them wow. use the app for like 20 minutes. And it's a brutal day, but like you leave the day and you're like, Oh my God, I had no idea people
2: were doing it like this. How do you tactically, how do you set that up? You just like email people and be like, yeah. Hey, do you want to jump on a zoom call with me or, or. Yeah.
1: I just use a calendar link and I'm like, here's 20 minute, whatever, grab a spot. And I said, the do they hold like, their
2: phone like this and like show you? Sometimes, yeah. yeah.
1: I've used an app called look back to like see their screen also. Um, I've kind of experimented with a bunch of stuff, but a lot of times it's not really on the screen. Like they're they're just talking Mm. through situations and you just have to keep saying like, why, what happened? Why did you do this? When did you do that? And like, keep digging in. So it's not, there's not as much screen as you would think, you know, but so user studies are key. And I just, it's a thing I constantly remind myself to do. And it's freaking painful. If we're being honest, Mm -hmm.
2: it's, I've been, I've been terrified of this uh, phone call all day. (laughs) Uh,
1: It's hard like it's it's and it's hard work to dig into the cuz they just want to tell you like the small little fix that they want you to do but 9 times out of 10 the reason that they want that small little fix is cuz you failed at something like way upstream you have to yeah. keep digging at it to get it and it's hard and then yeah you mentioned customer support so I kind of have a controversial maybe controversial I don't know I, sometimes <laughs> controversial opinion on customer support. So I used to really approach it as like, make the users happy, keep the users happy, like tell them you're the best. Thanks for being a user, all that kind of stuff. And at least I I found like anecdotally through reactions that the shorter that I can keep replies and the more like, just as everyone that's doing like these automated customer support, like every one of us has gotten those like paragraph long things that say like, we value you as a customer. You've put in the ticket system, like blah, blah, blah. How do you rate my support? And then like a huge long signature. And I try to keep it like really short and kind of like honestly coming from a person. Like I I just write something as fast as I can basically, and just reply and ask a question. And, And I guess I kind of, alluded to my answer there was saying ask a question. I really, really view customer support as an input for me, like as a product builder. I do not think of it as support for the community. Like I think of it as like this person is mad about something or happy about something or has a problem and they're writing me because they want it to work so bad. Usually they love the product and they're like, I'm annoyed it doesn't work this way. And I really view it as opportunity. What I try to do, I can't remember what book I got this from, but what I try to do is I try to ask them when or what, because if you ask why they're like, because it sucks or because I want it (laughs) that way. Like, so if you can get the scenario of like, when were you doing this, that it mattered, or like, what were you doing that made this annoying? Interesting. Then I can start digging into like, what's the real problem that you're so annoyed about, but you also love the app so much about that you're willing to write me an email about it. So I guess the I guess the takeaway is like I really do not view it as oh my god, thank you for being a user, and uh, we've added a plus one to this feature request. Right now, there's not enough requests, and blah 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 blah. blah. It's it's I want to ask what and when to try to figure out like what is the thing that we're not solving that's still a problem for you.
0: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense, and I I, I love framing it as and I hadn't thought about it quite like this, but it's like the the people who email you and and ask support questions, like they're the ones who care, like they're yeah. your real customers. Like the people who don't care, they they just they stop using the app, they're gone, they're yeah. out, and yeah. so.
2: It's not a bad sign when you have lots of support, right? I that's, agree, yeah. That's a good sign, actually. I I, I was going to ask, Ryan, like, it's a, as a consumer app, you tend to have a lot more users. Like, how are you doing all the support yourself? Like, how are you managing that?
1: So part of the reason I know that this is semi-controversial
2: <laughs> is I hired
1: someone to start helping us do it on Weatherline. And as I was training him, he's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, this is not the way to do customer support. <laughs> so I kind of had to... uh given my thoughts on customer support and I think he's come around to it actually. Um, but yeah, to answer your question, someone helps on weatherline basically it was just not healthy for me to be doing it. Like it takes so much effort and takes so much out of you.
2: And I've actually, it was my my first two years on revenue care first year and a half on revenue cat was all, Oh, I did it on
1: weatherline for like seven or eight years. It's brutal. Not less volume of course, but the thing that I've kind of like a hack I figured out is I've set up, it's either front or help scout, depending on which one I'm using to post to a Slack channel that I call user feedback. So I get to see everything that's coming in. So I kind of, yeah, yeah. they'll have my finger on the pulse. It's like any time if email comes in or someone tags us on Twitter or a review gets posted on the app store, it all goes to this user feedback channel. So I can just uh, kind of like scroll, scroll through it and see what the pulse of people are without doing the massive effort of replying to everyone.
2: Yeah, I think, like, support, like, ops, like, how it's done. It's just, like, something you... I mean, honestly, when I started RevenueCat, I didn't really think about, right? <laughs> it's like, I don't know, another <laughs> <no, no>, no. <laughs> thing. Uh, but it has become such a big... Like, it's the biggest... T- outside of engineering, it's the biggest team on our company. Uh, biggest team at our company. Um, And, and it's... You, you kind of hinted at it with, like, who writes in, but it's folks that have found the edge of your product. And that's super useful as a product creator. It's like, they have found where your product doesn't quite meet their need or they have been frustrated. Sometimes it's like a simple thing. like I can't find the, you know, yep. whatever. And, and you answer that question, but you learn a little bit. You learn like, Oh, somebody got lost. Right. Yep. Um, and it, it, it also like, it also gives you some data around the trade-offs you've made. Right. Somebody I get, I see, t- we have a similar thing where the tickets like stream through and I can kind of read, I try to keep up, I don't read them all, but I like try to see like the themes and uh, yeah, sometimes you'll see them and you're like, yeah, that's a, that's that way because we did that to avoid another bigger problem, right? And it's hard because <laughs> you're like, I'm not getting tickets about the other problem right now. And then upside. But I think investing in your support infrastructure, thinking about it, how you go through it and being opinionated. I think that's great. Like, I think, I don't know, my, this is my personal opinion on building stuff, but I keep being centered around the person making it, but I think it's important that it has your voice, right? And it has the the, fl- the flighty voice. Maybe that's a little bit terse and direct, but yeah. I think your <laughs> your product's kind of no BS, right? So it kind of fits the brand, right? You're talking about, I mean, Carrot's a, maybe a good count. I don't know what their support <laughs> is like, but it's kind of a good counterexample <laughs> of like a very different... Oh, he
1: leans into it big time. His support's hilarious.
2: You make of it what you want, like, and you're still getting value out of it. And I'm sure your customers, you know, if they writing in, they care enough, right? As long as you're telling them like, Not telling them like you know go to hell or whatever. Like (laughs) they're just happy to have an answer.
1: I've written into your support maybe like five or six times, and it's I, I always appreciate the responses that are like technical in nature and trying to actually get at the underlying problem. Like think exactly like you said. If you really think of yourself as a like a user that loves a product, when you write in, like, do you want the like we added a plus one and we'll email you when it's solved, or do you want the person to engage with you and try to figure out actually what's going on more. Like it may not feel like it, but you're doing the right thing for them and for the product by like actually engaging and trying to dig in more instead of just saying like, thanks.
2: Yeah. I met with a early uh, person who ran support at Stripe very early on a few months ago. And something that he mentioned that was really kind of like changed my mind about support is that you can, you have to make a decision is support a cost center for your company mm. or is it like part of the product? And it's mm. no value judgment. I think different companies have a different needs, but but, you know, we've made the decision at that point that it's part of the product, right? The customer support is part of it. Um, and I think that leads to just, you know, different decisions with how you cost it, how you resource it, like all, the, all of these things. So,
0: so Ryan, um, as we close out, any, any closing thoughts or uh, anything you wanted to, uh, to pitch to our astute audience of subscription app developers? We were talking pre-call. Ryan's actually listened to like almost every episode of, of Super Fan. Club. As a <laughs> uh, you know, not a lot of people are talking about these things. So anything uh, you want to share with uh, with that community?
1: No, I mean I love finding people that's talking about this kind of stuff and kind of the angle of building products and um, you know making users happy and all that kind. Instead of like, how do we get our CAC to LTV ratio be this by doing some growth hack that like works for three months or like...
2: That's on Netflix podcast. So yeah.
1: <laughs> Here's a trick that I learned to like growth hack, blah, blah. Um, yeah, I mean, check out my two apps. Um, you can get to both of them via my Twitter, which is rjonesy, uh, which is R-J-O-N-E-S-Y. And then uh, honestly, a thing that kind of I've learned through this whole COVID sitting at home, staring at computer screens is I really value... You know, human to human interaction. So, iOS kind of senior developer indie people who are interested in that scene in Austin, reach out and say hi.
0: Yeah, cool. I'll uh, I'll plug Ryan as a as a good person to follow on Twitter. All this kind of product thinking and strategy and stuff like that. Like I uh, and the just being helpful and not being stupid. Like you're you're a very high uh, signal to noise ratio person to follow on Twitter in regard to like Apple stuff and product and everything. So. So, yeah, if you're in the space, go follow Ryan on Twitter. And uh, thanks again for the, for the call today, Ryan. It was great chatting with you and a lot of interesting stuff. Thanks. Thanks, guys. To make sure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show and your favorite podcast player. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.